I'm Chad Miller, and welcome to Read It Because I Wrote It, a podcast where I do just that, read my work because I wrote it. I know y'all have a million other things to do, other podcasts to listen to, so I just need 10 to 15 minutes of your time. If life allows it, once a week, I will write something new, read something old, and give some insights I've learned in hopes you see a little of yourself and myself. It's quite simply, everybody's got a story to tell French girls. Wouldn't it be interesting for the story to begin just meeting and talking in a coffee shop? Noam inquired. It was a little after 1 p.m. and the shop closed at 12.30 for the day. It seemed as if the two of us lingered and let time stand still for a moment before we went our separate ways. I'd watched her close the shop a few times and it never took her as long as it did this spring afternoon. Noem glanced in my direction, perhaps to gauge whether I would react or respond to her question, as she mopped the floor in a very slow but casual fashion. I think that would be a very good story, I replied after a pause. In the romantic comedy arc, this moment would be considered a meet-cute. However, it was more in line with the arc of the hero's journey a call to action. Our narratives were scribed in different languages, cultures, and age. Noem was unaware our interactions were a full-circle anecdote, one which began in the summer of 1997. A kid from Southeast Queens, a taught-by-osmosis music prodigy who commuted with his twin sister to middle school. From Cambria Heights to East Elmhurst, The hour-long trip was when I began to explore hip-hop on my own terms via my Walkman. My parents understood rap. However, they were not a part of hip-hop culture. In the days of car rides with the radio, and sometimes cassette deck, as the sole form of entertainment, R&B and all of its formats is what played. Because of my music education, I was able to put both together. I knew most of the old songs that were sampled by modern MCs. God humbled me and sat my ass down that summer. Outside of my grandparents' house, I told my sister and friends, look at me, I can roll a blade with this three-year-old in my arms. I whisked up the block, turned around, and skated backwards. It looked effortless, as if I practiced for weeks. Then. I fell. To protect the little girl, I clutched her tight with my right arm, leaned backward, stretched out my left arm to absorb the impact. This, and when it happened again at 14, was how I learned to not be a show-off. I want to break for a second. I want to take a second to unpack that. Perhaps the one thing that has held me back so much in life, rooted in this fear of being misunderstood or a fancy way of saying a fear of rejection or any of that, often shows up in a fear of coming off arrogant. I'm well aware that I'm a very talented guy, but it's really because I just work very hard. 
Well, God's given me gifts, but then those gifts, I worked hard on those too. And many times when I just would share things, it was more like show and tell and not look what I got versus what you have. But what often happens is that gets kind of caught in the crossfires because people tend to not see me for who I am, but what they are not. I.e., let's just take, for example, music. When I was in fifth grade, I stopped singing because I was the only boy in my class who could like sing and hit high notes, you know? So I kind of like became the choir director's favorites and, you know, it was me and like one other boy because they needed another voice. And, you know, we got to eat lunch while people had class once a week because of choir rehearsal. So one day, this is 1996 and the kids is like, yo, we about to start a rap group. Tale of the time group was called the bad boys. Everybody got to join except me. And I was like, what about me? They was like, nah, when it's time to do a love song, then you can come and be a part of it. That was the moment I stopped singing. I've had a roommate for three years, my boy Devin, when I was recording all the time. And I've asked him, I was like, yo, have you ever seen me record singing vocals? He was like, hardly ever. So even when I sing vocals, it's usually in an empty house. If and when you see me play records of mine, I'm not thinking about the music business. I'm not thinking about I can do something that you can. I'm thinking about the kid in fifth grade who quit singing over people projecting what they couldn't do. And the truth of the matter is, while I'm here, even just in my life now, it's plagued me because, quite frankly, all the shit that happened with my in-laws was because they saw they didn't see me for who I was. Someone who took care of their daughter and their grandchild. They saw the time that lacked from experiences they, I and others know about. And it cost me a lot. That got deep. That said, I lied and I told my family I tried to save the little girl before a car came. My sister and I planned to never tell a soul. There was no need for punishment from my parents because God did it way better, then blessed me, which is the purpose of these words. My punishment? I missed church the first Sunday after my heroics. When my sister came home, she told me how Reverend Barton made a prayer announcement for me. Therefore, everyone at church relayed a prayerful message to my sister to forward my way. The next Sunday, there I was, with my arm in a blue sling. I was greeted by so many well-wishers, a few hugs, an impromptu prayer or two with me and a couple of pets right on my break. I remember my basketball coach, Mr. Payne, said to me, too bad it wasn't your right arm, then you could spend all summer working on your left, with a smile. Note, he truly believed in my potential as a basketball player. Please read Basketball in Memory of Mr. Payne on Single Dad Ventures. The hairline fracture in my humerus was anything but. There was no basketball or rollerblades for the next four to six weeks. 
or in other words, until the start of seventh grade. With my mother in an intense dual master's program at Bank Street College and Parsons School of Design, and my dad in and out with Gerald Levert, I spent most of the summer of 1997 at both my maternal and paternal grandparents' houses, where we all lived down Murdoch Ave in St. Albans. All there was to do was listen to the radio, watch music videos, or play Sega Genesis with the radio or music videos playing in the background. I heard Puff Daddy premiere It's All About the Benjamins on the air at a barbershop. As I waited for my cut, God whispered a portion of my purpose. I always knew I would be a musician, yet I had not a clue how to pursue my aspirations. Barely in existence and hardly accessible, there was no Jeeves to ask on the internet yet. I recorded the songs I liked off Hot 97 and listened with incessance. Bars. Curated and sequenced to flow with the cohesiveness of what? Albums produced by Chad Love, CEO of 24-7 Records, would sound like. When I got my hands on a magazine like Vibe or The Source, I read them from cover to cover. By the time I started seventh grade, basketball took a back seat until I began to teach my nephew how to play. From August 8th until the 15th, my sister and I embarked on a cruise ship with our paternal grandparents, the family of my grandmother, alongside the church from the latter. As excited as Courtney and I were to loop around the Caribbean Sea, we looked to spend time with our favorite cousin, David, the most. David was two years older than Courtney and me. Our grandmothers were sisters, and the three of us were their first and only grandchildren until the 90s. Courtney and I saw David a handful of times a year. But we were close and looked forward to the extended period with the closest we had to an older sibling. Courtney befriended a girl from Baltimore, which left David and I to roam around a large boat with no supervision. As we gallivanted, David and I saw three black girls with curly hair over and over. We did not have the courage to speak to them, nor did we know how. Every time we see them, I'll beatbox and you rap, David suggested. I thought this was a brilliant plan. David and I rattled off songs such as Mo Money, Mo Problems by Big, The Rain by Missy Elliott, and the song which was probably the most conducive to catch the eye of a young lady. Kick in the door, waving the 4-4. All I heard was Papa, don't hit me no more. Like we made them up. It mattered none that the words came out of either of our mouths because French was the sole language David and I heard the trio speak. David and I just called them the French girls. Probably the same way they referred to us as Les Garçons Américains. Much older and a little more knowledgeable, they may not have been from France at all. Perhaps they were from Côte d'Ivoire, Congo, Haiti, Belgium, or perhaps the Republic of Chad. God threw those dumb boys a bone. One night, as our family went to dinner, we saw the French girls who were headed to the elevator we exited from moments before. 
If we boarded the cruise and first saw the French girls on a Saturday afternoon, by Monday night, we automatically knew our routine and it was on site. I missed it, but David and Courtney informed me that they heard the ladies attempt to mimic the beatbox and giggle to each other. It worked. It was now time to kick our plan into overdrive. Our brilliant idea fell short like leprechauns. With no success or shame, David and I decided to try until we got off the boat. If we saw them at the airport, on the way back to New York, we would have given it one more shot at TSA. Honestly, with no success or shame, definitely sums up our relationship in all of the good ways, David. The evening before we docked, David and I sullenly satellited around the French girls who frolicked poolside from a distance. From the top level of the promenade, looking down in their direction, circling around, we altered Lil' Kim's crush on you to fit our circumstances. I know you see us by the salad bar. True. I know you seen us by the poolside. True. But you still won't pay us no attention. Listening to what your girlfriends mention. Bonjour, je m'appelle Oui Oui. Got a different girl every day of the week. It's cool, not trying to put a rush on you. I had to let you know that I got a crush on you. We finally gave up and decided to leer by the pool. David and I stayed to ourselves and kept the French girls in an indirect peripheral view. At 36 years old, I can say all parties felt one another's energies. They looked at each other, pointed, laughed, and pushed each other, nervously running back to their group. It was obvious they wanted David and my attention, yet they knew they made it obvious one of the trio had to finally break the ice. One walked and the other two followed, and in their best broken English, <clears throat> Yo, I know I'm about to embarrass myself, so. Excuse me, can you do your rap for us? David and I played it cool, and I obliged. <laughs> you know, I can't even. Yes, I'm still laughing at myself through that line. David and I played it cool and obliged. David and I played it cool and obliged with a nonchalant. Cool. We had no idea we possessed then or now. We got the band back together for a reunion concert looked at each other and agreed it was time to give more money, more problems, the same gusto we did on day one. All of those times were rehearsals for this moment. Truth be told, it was our song at that moment. We ran through all three verses. I inserted my name for theirs, i.e., Chad, you know ain't nothing changed but my lamp. We changed... We also did not say the chorus in case the young ladies heard it before. That would blow our cover. David and I killed. Not once did we look directly in their direction. These three beautiful brown girls stood in front of us with the biggest smile we'd seen and had not a fucking clue what we said. <laughs> The straw Panama hat I'd worn all week like a fedora. It had like a royal blue band which matched the sling on my outfit. 
blew off twice. I caught it and put it back on my head, then continued rapping without missing a beat both times. Note, that's some real music prodigy shit. Go Chad. The French girl said thank you, walked off, and we never saw them again. Neither David or I looked for the girls after it either. Neither David nor I looked at the girls the whole time except in our peripheral vision. Had we done so, we would have killed the whole vibe, got laughed at, and I would have written a very different essay about this whole experience. We did other shit that week. I recently found our faux documentary about our visit to hell, fire-looking rock collection in Grand Cayman, something else I'll have to write about in another essay, because, wow, so much shit makes sense. None of it mattered because the only story to tell of any significance was the French girls we rapped for. David started to rap two years prior to our fantastic voyage. R.I.P. Coolio. The words and attitude were inside of me. However, I had yet to figure out how to coax them out. I wrote my first real rap in the summer of 98 and another three months later. In the summer of 98, David and I added Courtney back to our rap trio for the Teenage Talent Show on a carnival cruise where we performed Horse and Carriage by Cameron and Mace. <laughs> Yo, I'll be 37 tomorrow. And as I'm telling these stories as an adult, <laughs> I'm thinking about the words to that song. Hey, yo, I pull up to the hotel with my shit on blast to the valley. Motherfucker, go get my jag. <laughs> and you don't know? After our one show and punishment. Courtney's resignation from the rap game was not the most important departure of the summer of 1998. Six weeks after horse and carriage, my parents moved our family out of our apartment in Queens, 10 miles east, to exit 21 on the Southern State Parkway. David, Courtney, and I now lived walking distance from each other. In December that year, I pulled out a marble notebook and started my first book of rhymes. It is not out of the realm of possibility or probability another story would have happened to replace this one. Nonetheless, the one I do have to tell is my rap career, love of words, production, and much more began with a chance encounter and relentless effort to impress the brown girls who just wanted to hear me sing to them in French. There's Always a Girl Story was two guest features from release when Noem and I crossed paths. While it was quite a solid body of work, it was more of the same. A nonchalant, shoulder shrug, often jaded tales of emotionally reactive women who were both drawn and repelled by both my calm and ability to facilitate a chaos we both found comfort in. Days before I met Noem, my college friend, Acacia, whom I'd asked to give feedback as I wrote essays to coincide with music, revealed to me, I see Chad in Paris writing. It felt like it was time to sing a new song and I needed a reason to write and sing them. Per Noem's request, there's always a girl story would now become the story about her. 
and how our interactions prompted me to look back at my life. I was a reluctant prodigy who drove all of my instructors crazy because I didn't practice. I gave up my aspirations in the music business to support my relationship with Tamil. and wound up full circle 15 years later in a royal blue coffee shop in a neighborhood God told me some nudges about 1997. And I found my way back and she deserved it. As scary as it may feel, often the start to answering life's questions requires a look in the mirror. Until next time, be blessed. Read it because I wrote it. It's written, directed, produced, edited by me. The music, that's by me too. <laughs>